0: The family tree of Jesus. I'm excited about this one in particular because, I'm excited about this one because uh, probably for about five years I've wanted to do this. I've wanted to look at the the family line of Jesus and then look at the Christmas story uh, through that lens. And so that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. I'm going to kick it off this morning and then next week we're going to hear from Andrew, our our family pastor, and and then Todd will wrap things up. In the, in the third week, right before uh, Christmas. And so, uh, one of the things I, I love about um, what we're going to dive into today is the, the level of detail. So, you got any people here who are into details? Okay, I see some hands going up. You're like, yes, details. I'm about the details. Um, when we look at the story of Jesus, and we're going to look at lots of details, facts and figures today. And as you, and as you listen, some of you are going to just kind of, I just tell you right now, some of you are going to glaze over, because of the details, Cause you're more about the spirit of the thing, right? Cause Christmas is like, sometimes it's the spirit of Christmas. You know, it's just eggnog with a friend and it's like, wow, this is Christmas. But a lot of Christmas is found in the details. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you visit your parents' house and there's that, there's that ornament that's been out for 40 years and it's always on the mantle and it's like, oh, it's Christmas. And, and the lights are hung just so. And all the little details all culminate into, to creating this environment that is, that is, that is Christmas. And so, so we're going to be looking at, at lots of details. See? When we tell the Christmas story, if we're having a pageant or something, we, we often start the Christmas story here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, dot, dot, dot. And we begin to tell the, the Christmas story from this point forward. All right, so you, you know the story, I'm assuming, right? There's this, this young virgin named Mary, and an angel appears to her and says, you're blessed among women, and, and there's this child is going to be conceived in you. And, and she says, be it unto me, according to your word. And she gets pregnant. Now her fiancé does not think that's so cool. Right? And so Joseph, he's, he's getting ready to like end the, the relationship. And an angel appears to Joseph and says, This is of the Lord. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then Mary and Joseph, there's a census. You know, Herod. They go to the city of David, which is Joseph's uh, family lineage. And so they're going there. And when they get there, there's no room in the inn. Anybody surprised at this point? You're like, really? I didn't know that was going to happen. And so then... They get to the end, and there's no room, and so they end up going to a stable of some sort, and and the child is born. Jesus is born. He comes into the world, and he's put in a a feeding trough, a manger. And then, of course, after this happens, angels appear to shepherds in the field who are keeping watch over their flocks by night, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among whom he is pleased, And, and... You guys know the story, right? So then, and then wise men show up. And so when we tell the Christmas story, we start here and we fill in all the details about how his birth happened, right? We talk about his birth. But here's what's really fascinating. When Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, by the way, is a tax collector by trade. He's into details. He is a numbers guy. And when Matthew decides to sit down and pen the story of Jesus' life, he doesn't start here. This is, notice, it's verse, nobody ever looks down here. It's verse 18. So Matthew, as he begins to tell the story of Jesus, as he begins to tell the Christmas story, he starts in verse 1. And here's how he actually starts it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and he's going to follow this up with a huge list of 40 or more names. And. Most of the names you won't recognize, some you will, but as he goes through this list of names, it's all connected to the story of Christmas, it's all significant, and let's be honest, when you read your, like if you have a Bible reading plan and you get to Matthew chapter 1 and you're supposed to read the first five chapters, you, you don't have to nod your head or show your hands, but I'm guessing some of you just skipped the list of names, you're like, oh, who are these people? You just kind of, let's get to the real stuff about the birth of Christ, or maybe you just read the names and went, oh, that's interesting, or not. Right? Because you, all these names, and you're like, I don't know who these people are. I don't know why this, why, why does, does Matthew start Jesus' story and the Christmas story with a family tree, essentially? And that's exactly what it is. And so we're looking today at the family tree of Jesus. I got an image here of like a family tree assignment that we'll throw up. How many of you did one of these in school? All right. Almost everybody. At some point, you put your name in this box. And then you would put your, your, your biological parents' names in these boxes, and then their parents, and then their, you know, this is your grandparents, great grandparents. And you can see it's already getting complex with just four generations. And so what Matthew's gonna do, he's gonna trace Jesus' lineage over 40. And so you could imagine if we expanded this out, we'd go right up to the ceiling with names and lines going all over the place. And so Matthew is gonna, gonna kinda draw a line through the family tree. Of Jesus and he wants us to see he wants us to see some things now you may not know uh, your family tree depending on maybe if you are adopted or or maybe you just have never researched your family and you don't know uh, for a lot of us we might be able to go three maybe four generations back for me um, I'm not a, a detail guy but um, fortunately my, my last name is 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 Blair okay it's a French French Canadian name and fortunately, the Blais family, like my distant relatives, they have done a whole bunch of work to create a family tree that goes all the way back to the first Blais that landed here in Canada. So let me share a bit of detail about this because I looked it up. There's a whole website. It was kind of cool for me and for my kids to hear a little bit of how our family story is connected to a, a bigger story. Okay, So here, here's some of the stuff I found that um, Pierre Blais, Okay, this is my great ancestor, arrived in Quebec City. On May 25th, 1664. So that's like at the beginning, like New France. Right? Like the, the first settlers are coming over from France. And um, he arrived on a ship called Le Noir de Holland. Okay? And uh, he arrived on the ship. And, and what happened was he actually settled. He got a parcel of land. So lots of people came to the New World and they get free land. And they could begin to start a new life. And so he started to carve a little farm out of the bush on an island in the St. Lawrence right near Quebec City. And after five years of hard slugging, he was going to get married, and he married a young woman by the name of Anne Perrault, okay? And this young lady is what's called a daughter of the king, okay? And some of you have heard of Les Filles de Roi, okay? These are are young uh, Catholic girls, often who who grew up in orphanages, and the, the king of France actually sponsored them and gave them a dowry and gave them resources so that they could they could travel to this new rugged wilderness called New France and they could marry uh, a young man of their choosing. And so these, these, this brave young lady, Anne Perrault, left France and got on a ship and came to Canada and it was nothing like we know it today. And she married uh, Pierre Blais and they actually uh, started a family and she, gave, uh, she died giving birth to her 10th child. And there was a census taken uh, at the around the time, and I think it said they had five hooved or horned animals, and and about four or five acres of land cleared. So that so you can how hard it was, right? And it, so it's it's really cool because as we as we look at this story with my kids, they get to they get to see that we're connected to a story that begins way before us. And and you may not know your family lineage. Maybe somebody didn't do all that research for you, but I guarantee you, there's incredible stories in your past. And the fact that you and I are here is connected to a story. And so Jesus, one of the things Matthew wants to do in sharing this genealogy, is he wants us to know that Jesus is not just like some new thing that just appears, but he's actually deeply connected to the stories and promises of God throughout history. That Jesus is, is coming uh, through this specific lineage, and it means something really, really specific. So you may not know your family lineage back 40 generations, but many of the first century Jews would have known their lineage much better than we do. And here's why. Because when, when Joshua led the nation of Israel and they conquered this, this strip of land called Canaan, which is now Israel, after it was conquered, they divided it up into tribes. We could think of them like provinces or states, right? Right. And so these were sections of land that were divided up by family. So if you were of the family of Manasseh or Gad or Ephraim, this was your heritage, this was your land. And then this particular area would be subdivided into all these smaller plots of land, and each family and all the descendants would have their land. This was set up in such a way that the land belonged to the family of that patriarch or that uh, descendant forever. And what's so cool is that even if you were from Ephraim, and let's say uh, you got into online sports betting. <laughs> I don't advise it. Anyway, and so you gamble your farm away, let's say. There was a provision in the law of Moses that would say that there would be something called a year of jubilee. So let's say you lost everything and you had to forfeit your right to your land. There was a, a day and a time when all the lands would return back to their ancestral birthright. So God had made a provision so that everyone could have their land that was promised to them through their descendancy. So if you were a Jew in the first century, you probably knew your forefather, you probably knew your lineage way better than we do, right? Because we live in a kind of an individualistic culture. It's like, I'm a whatever, I'm, I'm me, and we, just, we don't focus on our past the way that they would have. And so what's so fascinating about this is that when Matthew is going to read this list of names a first century Jew would have really paid attention. They would have seen things in the names that we just go, oh, whatever. We gloss over at all these names that seem random, and there's so much beautiful detail in these names. And and Matthew is actually using this to, to explain something really, really, really important to us. So here's where he begins. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. The first thing that David wants you and I to know about this list of names, is that this name, this list of names is going to connect Jesus to the king named David. Now, there's a reason for this, because God had actually promised that one of David's descendants, one of his offspring, would actually sit on the throne forever. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. And your house and your kingdom, this is to David, shall be made sure forever before me, your throne will be established for how long? Not for 100 years. Not for a thousand years, forever. God literally promises to David that someone who is a descendant of your body will be king forever. The throne will never leave your family. That's a big, bold promise. And when Matthew's giving us this list of names, he wants us to know that God is keeping that promise and that Jesus is a direct descendant of David and therefore he has the right to fulfill that promise and to sit on God's throne and rule as king of kings. That's incredible. That's incredible. Okay, you with me? Even those of you that don't like details, that's still pretty incredible, okay? Uh, he goes on to say this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, we just talked about that, son of Abraham. God uh, revealed himself to a man by the name of Abraham, and he said to Abraham that he would bless him and that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed. That someone would come, a descendant of Abraham would, would revolutionize the world and of course, when we think of that, we need to understand that that's pointing to Jesus. And so Matthew is going to connect Jesus not only to David, but also to Abraham. Here's, here's what Paul writes to the Galatians. Paul says, The promises were made to Abraham, promises of blessing, and to his offspring. It does not say, into to offsprings. So Paul is saying, we we know that the children of his, of Abraham, the descendants, the Jewish people, are blessed. But he's like, the promise really wasn't just about them. It was actually referring not to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is who. Right. So so Paul's like, what we need to understand is while the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are blessed, it's because they would be the family line, the family tree of Jesus. And the one who would come who would be blessed and who would bless the world would be Jesus. In other words, all of this history, all of what God was doing through the nation of Israel was all pointing to Jesus. Jesus. Matthew wants us to know, right in the first verse, he wants us to know that Jesus is not, Jesus is not an add-on. He's not just a good prophet, good teacher who shows up, a good guy. He is actually the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is coming. He shows up on the scene. Matthew's going to tell us about how he was born, but he really wants us to know who this guy is who's being born. He's the son of David. He's the heir to the throne. He is the descendant of Abraham. He's the promise the one who would bless the world and save mankind. Jesus is all of it, and we need to know this before we start talking about mangers and stables and wise men, okay? This is so important. This is who Jesus is. Now, for those of you uh, who have ever uh, read the Gospels carefully, then you, you will already know this, but for those that don't, let me tell you. There's actually two different genealogies given for Jesus. Matthew begins his Gospel with a list of names from Abraham to Jesus. Says this is the family line of Jesus. Luke also includes a family tree of Jesus, and they're not the same. Some are like really, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're close, but there's some uh, areas where they uh, diverge and they split off. They branch off through different people, and then they both end up back at Jesus. And so, some people who might be skeptical of the Bible would say, "Well, <laughs> that clearly shows that these uh, gospel writers." did not have all the details, they didn't do their homework, they were careless, that the Bible includes errors, that would be an assumption that some people would make. Um, When you begin to look at these two genealogies, um, you begin to see all kinds of things that jump off the page. First of all, you have to understand that unlike us, we look at genealogies and things like that, like like a math textbook, and we're going like this and this and this and biological, but the Jews did not do that. The Jews uh, employed all different uh, techniques as they were building out their genealogies. And um, and one of the things we note right away is that Matthew and Luke are writing to two different audiences. So that's important. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Luke is writing to non-Jews. Okay, That's why Luke starts at Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam to show that all people are part of this story. Matthew's like, we can just start at Abraham and go to Jesus because I'm only talking to Jews. And so you have these, these two different uh, purposes behind them. So there are a couple of different uh, possibilities for why these two genealogies uh, don't exactly line up. Do you want to hear about them? It's too much detail? Some of you are like, yes, tell me I'm taking notes. Others are like, can we just skip to the, to the part where we pray? Um, <laughs> Matthew and Luke, uh, the genealogies vary. And here's one of the reasons why. One of the reasons would be uh, that one of the genealogies is tracing the lineage through blood through blood. Okay, so we all understand what this means. Biological children, this person biologically had this person. The other way that you could look at a genealogy, which often happens, is through leveret marriage. Let me explain, because this is a concept that, that isn't really around anymore. It's definitely not in our culture. If a young man was the firstborn son of a father, and he gets married, and he doesn't have any children, and he dies but he has no heir to his father's or to his family legacy, then what would happen according to um, the law of Moses is that the wife, who's not even from that family, would now, like her husband's gone, she's no longer part of the tree, so what they would do is she would marry one of the younger brothers, usually the next oldest. And then when she gets pregnant and has a child, the child is actually the eldest brother, so it's it's a leveret marriage. So she actually has a child, but it's not the second son's child. It's the firstborn son's child. And that child takes the family line down. So you can imagine now going through 40 generations with this happening constantly, how many branches would fork off the tree every time these things happen. And there's examples within Matthew's genealogy of this happening. So that's one reason why these two genealogies could be varied. One could be biological, and one could be leveret marriages, so tracing it through different ways. The other proposed uh, reason why these two would differ, that some scholars lean towards, which I think is really cool, is that they would say that perhaps Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's family tree, and Luke's genealogy is Mary's family tree. Now, why would we think this? Well, it's interesting to note, if you read the first few chapters of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew's focused on Joseph. He doesn't even talk about the angel appearing to Mary. He's like, an angel appeared to Joseph. And then after they flee, an angel appears to Joseph. And he's not focused on Mary really at all. And then when you read Luke's gospel, guess who he's focused on? Mary. He talks about Mary seeing the angel. He talks about what she said. He talks about the song of Mary and visiting Elizabeth. And he says little things like, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Like, why would he say that? He's looking at the Christmas story through the lens of Mary so we could have two specific genealogies, one for Joseph and one for Mary. Now, why would, why, would, why would that be there? Because Joseph, as the father, would be the legal heir to the throne of David. right? Even though Jesus was not his biological child, he would be an adopted child and would have that right. But through Mary, he would also be the biological child of David. You, you, you see the details? It's really, really cool when you begin to, to look at some of the details and how all this comes together. So... With all this in mind, uh, I want to turn, and we're going to actually read the list of names. You've probably never been in a sermon when someone read this list of names. Please be gracious to me. There's a lot of weird names in here. And uh, so we turn, I'm going to highlight some names as we go through. If you can go to the, there it is. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. So he's trying to show us. David, Abraham, Jesus is a direct son of both, and he begins at Abraham. As we go through, I'm going to highlight some names, and I just want you to make a mental note, because we're going to circle back and talk about them later. These are names that probably shouldn't be in the list, and the fact that Matthew includes them should spark all kinds of flags for us, and so we'll look at that at the end. So Abraham is the beginning of this genealogy, is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and and, and Zerah, okay, by Tamar. Now, this is the first flag that should go up. If you're a Jew in the first century, you're like, why is Matthew including a woman's name? Flag. We just read it. We're like, oh, cool. This is a flag. This is a huge flag. It's like, we, we don't include women in the genealogies. So this is flag. We'll talk about it later. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Solomon. I think we should, all the fishermen are like, call it Salmon. Salmon, okay? The father's, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. All of a sudden, we have another woman's name pops up. And the Bible actually tells us about Tamar's story and Rahab's story. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Here's another woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So he goes from Abraham to David. That's one block One block of names that he's going to highlight, and it ends with David the king. He picks it up from there. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So we have a fourth woman who's inserted into this genealogy. So again, you guys with me? I see some of your interest is peaked. You're like, okay, there's something to this. Matthew wasn't just scribbling down names. He's trying to make a point, isn't he? And so we continue. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation. So Abraham to David, David to deportation, this is a second block of names. After the deportation to Babylon, we pick up the story again. Jeconiah, the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Anybody here looking for a baby name? Zerubbabel. I, I can assure you, no one else has a kid with that name. And that's what we want. We want our kid to be unique, like the snowflake there. So Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, who's a priest. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And now we come to the end. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, connecting the legal right of Jesus, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Okay, so we've got three blocks. Now, let me show you in the next verse, he's actually, Matthew's going to specifically say, I put these in three blocks, Okay. All the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen, from David to the, ba- uh, uh, the exile, deportation to Babylon, 14. from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. Now remember, Matthew's a tax collector he 's kind of into numbers. He gets really excited by numbers, and he 's literally organized this genealogy into three blocks of 14. It doesn't tell us why. Uh, let me give you a couple of. Reasons why he might have. Uh, In the Hebrew language, each Hebrew letter has a number associated with it. And so sometimes people will take the, you know, all the numbers with the letters and add them up and try to, uh, well, can you guess what David's name in Hebrew adds up to in numbers? 14. So again, he's already made the case that Jesus is the son of David. This is really important to Matthew. This is really important. And now he's grouped his genealogy into four, three groups of 14. Again. Sign- like uh, Again, first century Jews would have picked up on this stuff. It just kind of blows right by us. Son of David. Son of David. Son of David. The king is here. The one who would fulfill the promises. The one who will sit on his throne forever. The one who will save his people. He's here. Look at it. And he's come. And there's these three separate eras there's the era of the patriarchs in the first there's the era of the kings following david in the kingly line and then the era after the deportation and matthew's also saying now that jesus arrived there's a new era a new kingdom is here something is shifting we've gone through this era and this era and this era and now jesus has come he is the son of david that's really clear the son of david son of David. by the way when you read matthew's gospel he uses the phrase son of david 10 times just keeps inserting it in the gospel all pointing to this so now some of you are curious about those names let's look at them real quick these four names are brought into the story into the lineage of jesus and as i said it was not normal to have when you look at luke's genealogy no women so when i saw tamar rahab ruth and the wife of Uriah in the list my first thought was matthew is trying to let us know that women are included in the story of god and he's trying to show their part and by the way Women, of course, throughout history, have been part of the story of God. And I thought, is that really what Matthew's trying to say? And after studying it a little longer, I thought that's not the point. Even though that's true, that's not the point he's trying to make. That's not why they're there. And then I thought, well, why else could they be there? Well, there happens to be sexual scandal connected with all four of them. Some of you are leaning like, really? I didn't know. I should read the Bible more. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, so Tamar, we won't get into all the details, she pretends... Um, let, actually, let me, I didn't give the first uh, service a story. Let me give you the, the, the story here, okay? Um, Tamar is married to Judah's eldest son. Judah has been promised that through his line would come the Messiah. And she marries the eldest son of Judah. And basically, he's evil and wicked, and God takes his life. And so the father says, okay, you're going to have a child where you're going to marry the second, my second born son and have a child for your older brother. Well, the second born son doesn't want her to have a child that would then take the inheritance away from him. And so God's like, because you're so selfish, I'm taking you. And he takes that guy out. Now there's only one son left and he's too young to get married. And the father says, when he's old enough, I'll give you to him to be married and you can carry on the family line. Okay. Guess what? Guess what Judah does. He renegs on the deal. And so Tamar's waiting for this this young man to be... And then he gets old enough and and nothing happens. And so she ends up tricking Judah. She dresses up like a prostitute. And he goes into her and he gets her pregnant. And then when he finds out that she's pregnant, he wants to kill her for infidelity. And he doesn't realize that it was with him. And so she shows up and he's going to kill her. And she pulls out his rod and his signet ring. And he's like, by this man, I'm pregnant. And he's like, oh... scandal. Okay? Rahab, she, by the way, if you know the story of Joshua comes into the land and and the spies are hiding in Jericho and they can't escape and Rahab, who is a prostitute, she's like come into my room and she brings them in and she lets them down the wall and and she actually trusts in the God of Israel and because of that she's actually marries into and is becomes part of the story of Jesus, which is crazy. And, and both of these women are brought in because of their faith in God, which is crazy. And then Ruth, Ruth is is a lady who, um, uh, she's actually from another nation, and, and she, anyway, I won't get into all the story. The wife of Uriah, um, Bathsheba is actually her name, by the way, Bathsheba. And if you know Bathsheba's story, she's just harmlessly out on her roof taking a bath. And King David just happens to be have a house that's taller and he's watching this happen, and he's desirous of her, and he gets her, he gets her pregnant, kills her husband. Like, scandal, right? Next week, Andrew's going to talk more about sin and scandal, so I don't, want to, I don't want to steal his thunder, right? Because there's all of that through Jesus' family tree, just like it's all through yours, by the way. But then I thought, okay, so if it's not the fact that they're women, and it's not sexual scandal, then what could it be? Why did Matthew include these four names? They're all Gentiles. Yes, they're all Gentiles. Populate it up for me, would you? Uh, On the next slide, it shows Tamar was a Canaanite. Judah's son was never supposed to marry her. They weren't supposed to marry Canaanites. Those were outsiders. They were supposed to marry Jews. But he married her anyway. Rahab was a Canaanite. And she's brought into the family of God. Ruth was a Moabite. And when Naomi says, Ruth, you should go be with your family. My son's dead. I have nothing for you. She says, no, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she's adopted into the family of God. And she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus, and then you have the wife of Uriah. Now, this is the one that really got me tripped up because I'm like, why didn't why didn't Matthew say Bathsheba? Why didn't he? He used all their names. Why didn't he? And the reason why is because I think what Matthew wanted to show is that the faithfulness of Uriah, who was a Hittite, who was faithful to David and faithful to God, even though he was murdered and his wife stolen, became the mother of King Solomon. His name is included because we see that God honors these outsiders who had faith to to become part of the family of God so Matthew who is a Jew is writing this genealogy and he's added these names because again first century Jews would have been like these people don't belong in the list and he's like yes they do because what he wanted the first century Jews to know is this at the Christmas story that outsiders are included in the Christmas story because the Christmas story is for outsiders People would have heard Matthew and what he's going to teach in his gospel and said, oh, no, the, the Savior is only for the Jews. And he's like, no, it's for the Gentiles. It's for the world. It's for the Greeks. It's for the Romans. It's for every person. This new kingdom is not just for Jews. It's for everybody. And the people would have said, no, 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 no. It's always been just for the Jews. And he would point back at that lineage and be like, actually, no, look, God's been involving Gentiles, non-Jews, all the way along. Making a point that is so, so important. Which is fascinating because once you realize that this is part of Matthew's, um, what do you call that? His purpose in writing this gospel, he wants to highlight this. Then when you read the gospel of Matthew, all kinds of stuff starts jumping off the page. Let me share some of them with you. The first, because we're doing a Christmas series, is this. He's like, Mary's pregnant, has a baby. That's basically what he says at the end of chapter 1. And then chapter 2, guess what he starts saying. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east... The first characters he introduces in the Christmas story are not Jews. <laughs> oh, interesting. Luke talks about angels and shepherds and innkeepers, and Matthew jumps straight to Hey, by the way, when Jesus was born, there were people who were not Jews who came to worship him. He continues to say this He says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to, to worship him. He's like, Guys, this king that's been born is not just for us, he's for the world, he's for everyone. He's for everyone. Now, as I begin to read through the Gospel of Matthew, let me share some of the highlights because these are things that I never noticed. And they all connect to this genealogy. So the genealogy is like a key that unlocks so much of the context of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 3, right after the wise men, John the Baptist is preaching a sermon. And the religious leaders are like, We're descendants of Abraham. That's why we're special. I'm paraphrasing. And John the Baptist says, God is able to make children of Abraham from these stones. He's like, you're proud of your family line. Can I tell you something? Repent. Repent and put your faith in the son who's coming. That's what John's message was all about. He's like, it's not about your family line. It's about your faith in him. Then you move on. Uh, one of the first stories that, uh, one of the first miracle stories that Matthew tells is about a Roman centurion. And Jesus says, I'll come and and heal your your servant. And he says, no, just say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus stops at the faith of a a Roman and goes, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Matthew put that story there for a reason. He wanted the Jews in the first century to see that God had made a way to include all of us into the story. He tells the story in Matthew of a Gentile woman who has such great faith. She comes to to Jesus and and she says to Jesus, "Like my daughter's sick. Would you heal her? And Jesus says, I'm not going to give the children's bread, speaking of the Jewish people's bread, to a dog. That's what the Jews call the Gentiles dogs. She doesn't even get offended, which is so cool. She's just like, Well, actually, around our place, the dogs get to eat all the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And just the crumbs that fall off your table are enough to heal my daughter. And Jesus is like, What the? This person has so much faith. He heals her daughter anyways. Jesus is highlighting these people of faith who are not Jews all the way through. That's what Matthew's doing. He talks about the religious leaders. He says that one day Nineveh will rise up and judge the Jewish nation. Why? Well, if you know the story of Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because they weren't Jews. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to save them. He's like, I don't want to go to those people. And he goes and he, he preaches a message of repentance. He doesn't even do a good job because he doesn't want it to work and they all repent and turn to God, and God spares them, and he's mad about it. And, and Jesus says, one day the Ninevites will stand up and judge you because I showed up and you rejected me, but these Gentiles received me. Matthew's making a really strong point through his gospel. It's even at his, even at his crucifixion, it says Jesus is hanging on the cross, and when he dies, it is the Roman soldiers, Gentiles, who look up and say, truly this was the Son of God. And then here's the coolest thing. Matthew's gospel ends with what we call the Great Commission. And the Great Commission clearly states, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So Matthew's entire gospel, one of the sub-themes, a string that you could pull right through the whole gospel is, this Jesus, this kingdom, this Messiah is not just for us. It's for the world. It's for everyone. When you see it, you can't unsee it. It's incredible. And here's the thing. I know that most of us in this room today, if you're here, You're probably not Jewish. Maybe we have some some Jewish brothers and sisters. It's not the point. What's incredible is that we have all been grafted into the family tree of Jesus by faith. Just like Rahab, just like Tamar, just like um, the Hittite. What's his name? Uriah, that's his name. We've been grafted into the family tree just like them. That we get to be part of the story that God is writing through history. But here's the thing, and I guess here's the challenge that I kind of wanted to leave you guys with at the end of, of this message is simply this. Just like it was so natural for the Jewish people in Matthew's day to look out and to say, you know what? This Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior we've been waiting for, it's for us. And it's only for us. It is it is just as easy for us to begin to think that way as well. We don't, we don't think Jew and Gentile. Maybe we think churched and unchurched. Maybe we think believers, non-believers, us, them. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it's so easy for us to come to Christmas and to read the Christmas story and to revel in the fact that we have this amazing Savior and look at what he did. And, and, we, and we just we take it all in and we have hope and peace and joy and, and we have all these things and yet we're so slow to share this good news with those who are outside of the faith, you with me? When was the last time that you shared this incredible story? And and I'm telling you, it's so easy to just be like, us four and no more. We have a Savior. Let's celebrate that at Christmas time. And we And we miss the opportunity to share this good news. Because let me tell you something. Our world is full of people. Maybe your family is full of people. The people you go to school with, the people you go to work with, they're running around this Christmas looking for hope that won't be found in a... In a store, in a purchase, in a vacation. They're looking for a hope that is only found in a Savior, a Messiah, the true King of Kings. And maybe they've heard the story of Christmas, but they've never known. See, the thing is, some people don't believe that God exists, and others believe He exists, but He's distant and far off. But when Jesus came to this earth, He actually said, We have a Father who sees everything. The very hairs of your head are numbered. It's so personal, it's so intimate. For some of us, that is increasingly easy to count. But he knows every intimate detail of our life. A few of you caught that joke and it kind of just resonated through the room. Um, But he knows every detail. He knows your history. He knows your past. And if there's one thing this genealogy shows us is that God has been at work in the details of history. And through the mess, through the noise, Gentiles, Jews, kings, priests, prophets, all of it, God was at work all the way through to bring about a Savior into the world that would be not only for you and me, but for the world. And so many people just need the hope to know that there's a God who knows them, who sees them, and who has come to save them. It's not just for church people. It's for everyone who will believe and trust in Him. And guess what? They can be grafted into the family tree of Jesus too. So the coolest part of this whole thing is like God's been weaving this through history. And here's the coolest thing is that we all get to be part of the Christmas story. We all get to be part of the family of Jesus. And one day we'll all eat at a supper table and enjoy a meal together as this huge. I mean, you think your family Christmas is big. I mean, just imagine when all those of faith throughout history gather on a table with Jesus to celebrate. And I'm going to pray. And in just a moment, Henry is one of our elders is going to come and lead us in communion, which is the Lord's Supper. And. And I think as we do so, we should be reminded of the incredible detail and, and love that God has displayed. And, and, and this little meal we're going to share, this cracker, and it's actually, it all points to, it all points to that one day we'll gather as a family together. So would you join with me as we pray? Father, thank you. As we enter into this Christmas season, we, we want to acknowledge that you've been at work in history and you've been at work in our history. We want to acknowledge God that we are in need of a Savior and that you are the Savior that has come not just for us, but for this world. Help us, Lord, to to take this message of hope to those around us, to share it in small ways. Help us to, to recognize, God, that you are the fulfillment of God's promise and that when we put our faith and trust in you, we become adopted in, grafted into the family of God, that we get to be part of the family tree of Jesus. Sons and daughters of God, thank you for this today as we approach Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.